Well, this is the final conference, so we have to tie up some loose ends. So I mentioned to you, <clears throat> if you were to sum up, the reason, sum up the reason why our Lord Jesus Christ came, why God sent, the Father sent his only begotten Son to the world, we have to say, well, it was to reconcile us to God. To reconcile us to God. And to reconcile us to God in such a way that we see him as Father. So in a sense, to enable us to be children of God, who recognize God as our Father and see the fatherhood of God as our dignity, our purpose in life, our purpose in existence. So uh, that idea of reconciling us to, to God the Father as the mission of Jesus Christ here on earth means that we have to, again, learn of our Father through him. Jesus Christ himself is the one who is to show us who the Father is. We learn who the Father is through him. <clears throat> now when we meditate, when we practice mental prayer, we actually uh, think about the virtues, we apply our intelligence to divine revelation, and we do it in such a way not so much for the sake of theology, but for devotional purposes, in order to change ourselves. You know, we talk about people having a change of heart. We pray, Jesus, meek and humble of heart, make our hearts like unto thine. And we pray that because our Lord has said to us, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my, my, I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So we take those words of our Lord very seriously. We apply them to ourselves. We realize that we are the only form of life in this universe that can actually reflectively change itself. We can actually change our character. We can actually have a change of heart and do so deliberately. And so the meditation on the virtues is a major part of that. And St. Teresa of Avila speaks to us about mental prayer, which is something we all are going to need to become very adept at. We're going to have to get good at, and the only way we can get good at this is by practicing it. But we have an article here by a Reverend Ernest E. Larkin. He's a Carmelite, a Carmelite priest. And he's wrote, written a little monograph um, on the practice of mental prayer by St. Teresa of Avila. And it is, somewhat, it is somewhat enlightening. And when St. Teresa of Avila speaks of mental prayer, she's talking about med meditation. But she's also kind of leaning in the direction uh, lending the direction of contemplation as well. So I thought I would just read what he wrote here and comment on it a little bit. And he starts out with a quote from St. Teresa of Avila and her way of perfection. He says, she says, we need no wings to go in search of God, but have only to find a place where we can be alone and look upon him present within us. I mentioned, you know, we have to, in order to meditate, go off and find kind of that garden. 
um, that kind of walled garden that is spoken of in the Old Testament, an enclosed garden, where we can actually be alone with God. And this is what she's talking about. She's talking about finding a way to be alone with God. And uh, she says this is the, the purpose of finding God. We have no wings. We need no wings, she says, to go in search of God, but have only to find a place where we can be alone and look upon him present within us. So she says we have to look to God within. Now, we have to be careful here because, you know, the modernists say that faith and the spiritual experience <coughs> or religious experience is a matter of um, finding God within us or experiencing God within us. But that's not what St. Teresa of Avila is talking about here. Because as St. Pius X warns us, the modernists don't really distinguish whether that finding of God within us has to do with a God who exists outside of us or not. In other words, it could lead to pantheism that we think we're actually like the Gnostics think, we're part of God. So that religious experience of God within us means to them that we are part of God. But actually, St. Teresa is very clear as a Catholic that it is only by grace that Christ is present within us and that it is Christ himself who promised this, that he said, if any man receive me, if anyone even receive of my flesh and blood, then I will come and I will, the Father and I will dwell within that person, will dwell within him. And so St. Teresa understands that for the soul in the state of grace, there is a divine presence. The soul of, in the soul of the state of grace, grace, there is a divine presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. She says, so meditation really comes down to, for her, being alone with Christ in the depths of her soul and finding him there present by grace. So she says, St. Teresa of Avila learned as a small child that one had to die in order to see God. Little Teresa wanted to see God. Practical and courageous by temperament, she devised a scheme. She and her brother Rodrigo would go to the land of the Moors. There they would surely be martyred, and heaven would receive them. Very early one morning, the two children stole away from their home and crossed the bridge leading out of Avila. But the plan soon ran into trouble. An uncle who happened to be entering Avila at the time met the children, heard their fantastic plan, and unceremoniously returned them to their parental dwelling. St. Teresa of Avila was about 10 years old at the time. She had her brother, Rodrigo, in tow. They were going to go off a new market. They were going to leave Avila in Spain. They were going to go across into Morocco, and there the Moors would kill them, and then they would get to see God, so they thought. Later on in life, St. Teresa realized that one does not have to die to see God in a sense. We need no wings to go in search of him, she wrote, but have only to find a place where we can be alone and look upon him present within us. These words of the saint contain three essential steps for fruitful mental prayer. First, we must be searching for God. Second, we must be willing to be alone with him. And third, we need but look upon our Lord who is present within us. 
At first sight, this advice might seem too general or too obvious to be practical in mental prayer, but the three steps go to the heart of the matter. St. Teresa is the antidote for those who can't see the forest for the trees. With a woman's intuition, she cuts through the accidental and points out the essential conditions of mental prayer. Let us look at each of these principles in some detail. First, we must be searching for God. If God is just a name, if his love for us is an abstract truth which we believe but do not realize, we will hardly search for him. Mental prayer is too difficult for that. It will lack appeal. If, on the other hand, we are convinced that God is, in Teresa's words, quote, a better prize than any earthly love, if we realize that we actually have within us something incomparably more precious than anything we see outside, then we will desire to enter within ourselves and to seek God. When we are convinced that he cares for us and waits for us, we will have the security and the courage to love him in return. Mental prayer makes no sense to the loveless soul. Other prayers, for example, petitions or thanksgiving, even liturgical worship can be said with little or no conscious love for God. Not so mental prayer. It is by definition, in Teresa's view, nothing but a friendly conversation with him whom we know loves us. Quote, the important thing in mental prayer, she says, is not to think much, but to love much. That's what mental prayer is really ultimately all about. Mental prayer becomes passable when we realize the gift of God dwelling within our souls. Referring to her earlier years in religious life, St. Teresa wrote these regretful words. Quote, I think that if I had understood them as I do now, that this great king really dwells within a, a little palace of my soul, I should not have left him alone so often and never allowed his dwelling place to get so dirty. You know, when Teresa was a, an older teenager, about 18, 19 years old, she fell into a practice of devoting her time and attention to the novels that were now being printed since the printing of the inventing of the printing press. And uh, she actually, for about a year of her life, became, eh, well, in her own mind, rather sordid in her interests, in her entertainments. And uh, she is very grateful to God ever since for rescuing her from that because she realized where that would have led. It was not without purpose that God showed her her place in hell. You know. So she actually talks about if she had known at, earlier on that God was present by grace in her soul, she would have visited him more often in the very depths of her soul, she would not have allowed it to get so dirty there either. Mental prayer, you see, is nothing but our side of friendship with God, our yes to God's call and invitation. This leads us to the second principle of Teresa's advice, the willingness to spend time alone with God. For this saint, prayer is the way of perfection, the door to God's great favors, 
Once this door is closed, she writes, I do not see how he will bestow his favors upon us, for though he may wish to make take his delight in our souls and give the soul delight, there is no way for him to do so, since he must have it alone and pure and desirous of receiving his favors. Teresa herself closed this door for one year of her life, as I mentioned, during the long 18-year period of mediocrity, <clears throat> which she describes as a struggle to reconcile these two contradictory things, the life of the spirit and the pleasures of the senses. Teresa wanted God, but at the same time she was unwilling to give up certain little selfish habits, petty attachments that were displeasing to God. Giving up mental prayer was not the answer to this problem. It was almost a fatal mistake because this way is the only way to victory over ourselves and surrender to God. At the time, she excused herself from prayer on the plea of ill health. But in her heart, she knew the dishonesty of this reason. One needs no bodily strength for mental prayer, she wrote later, but only love and the formation of a habit. Love, as we have seen, is the root. But let us be sure we know what this love is. To many confused being loved with love itself. Love is outgoing, unselfish, active. It means, rather giving than self-seeking. It strives to please rather than to be pleased. Listen again to St. Teresa. Perhaps we do not know what love is. It would not surprise me, for love consists not in the extent of our own happiness, but in the firmness of our determination to please God in everything. This kind of love moves us to spend time alone with God not for what we get out of it, but for what we can put into it. Not for what we get, but for what we give. That's what love does. We don't go to mental prayer to feel good or enjoy a spiritual experience. These are secondary aspects at best. We go to protest our desire to accept God's love, to allow him to take over in our lives. And that's an interesting expression here. We go to protest our desire to accept God's love and to allow him to take over in our lives. It is accidental whether we are delighted with consolation or tortured by dryness and desolation, whether holy thoughts and affections pour out of our hearts or our minds are dull, sterile, and unproductive. Some of the best prayers are said when we don't feel like praying when we are tired and sluggish or burdened with self-pity and depression, when we are heavy, so opaque, so closed in on ourselves that only a heroic effort of our will keeps us kneeling at our prayer, it is this will to be alone with God and to talk with him that distinguishes true prayer from delusion, because this will is the love of God. Such love forms the habit of prayer. It makes us faithful to mental prayer day in and day out, in times of fervor and in times of coldness. It makes us choose God rather than ourselves, outside prayer as well as in prayer, a choice that will be evident in our acts of fraternal charity, generosity, and humility. This attachment to God and detachment from ourselves 
will measure the perfection of our prayer. As our life goes, so goes our prayer. And as our prayers go, so goes our life. We pray as well as we live, and we live as well as we pray. If we would improve then, where do we begin? Where shall we start? St. Therese gives us the answer. It is the same answer that our Lord gave in the Gospels. Perseverance, faithfulness, and the formation of the habit of prayer. So that prayer becomes, in a sense, second nature to us. We make the deliberate decision to pray, to be alone with God. And if we make that decision over and over again, quite soon it becomes a way of life. And we are actually mindful of God even in the occupations of our daily lives. In other words, the mental prayer will carry over into and animate all of our lives. St. Teresa would heartily endorse, I am sure, this thought of Dom Chapman, quote, if you want to pray well, then pray much. If you don't pray much, at least pray regularly, and you will pray well. But one practical question remains. How? How shall I go about making mental prayer? And here we come to the question of what we might call Carmelite spirituality. Some of you have read the Divine Intimacy, a book of meditations, actually, in a sense. Uh, these are the works of Carmelite, the Carmelite mind, Carmelite spirituality. And St. Teresa, of course, is the originator of this Carmelite spirituality. Um, it was this spirituality that animated St. Teresa, the child Jesus, uh, 400 years later. Well, almost 400 years later. St. Teresa's third principle is this answer. Simply look upon God present within your soul. The saint repeats this suggestion in many different ways. We are to fix our mind on the person of God, cultivate the sense of his presence. There you are. That's where all the methods start, by being aware of the divine presence. But the thing about Teresa is, she says that we find that presence actually by grace within our very souls. That's where her garden is. We cultivate the sense of the divine presence, have the realization of whom we are addressing. So we don't just see God as an object to focus on. Quite, quite we see him very differently. This is her secret. We want to see God who he is, even present by grace in our soul, how do we appreciate that, who God is? Well, that's what comes next. You will find no new method of mental prayer in St. Teresa. You'll find no structuring of preludes and points. She is silent on these matters, not because she is against them, but because she reduces mental prayer to its simplest terms. To certain nuns of her convent who objected that mental prayer was beyond their ability, she wrote, I am not asking you now to think of him or to form numerous conceptions of him or to make long and subtle meditations with your understanding. <coughs> I'm asking only to look at him. I'm asking only that you look at him. It is as simple as that. Beginners, she says, 
do dwell, do well to form an appealing image of Christ in his sacred humanity, beginners. Form an image. Okay, this has to do with, again, the memory and the imagination. They should picture him within themselves in some mystery of his life. For example, the Christ of the agony or the risen Savior in his glorified body. Once they are conscious of our Lord's presence within their souls, they need then only to look upon him and conversation will follow. This friendly conversation will not be much thinking, but much loving. Not a torrent of words, much less a strained, prepared speech, but rather a relaxed conversation with moments of silence, as there must be between friends. This is the way St. Teresa prayed from the beginning. She simply gave her full attention to the divine guest within her soul, and let her thoughts and sentiments take their course. At times she would console our Lord for his suffering. At other times she would rejoice with him in his resurrection. Sometimes her prayer would be effective, that is, made up of numerous acts of faith and hope and charity, humility, and the other virtues. Other times it was contemplative. It was simple, lingering, a simple lingering look of love that had the very feminine quality of blissful admiration. But perhaps this way of prayer does not appeal to you. Such prayer, you may say, is all well and good for contemplatives, but I need a more active prayer, a more busy prayer. I must think through a mystery of faith, make certain definite acts of my mind, work up concrete resolutions. I must follow a methodical meditation, or I am doomed at prayer. To this I say, well and good, each one of us must pray the way God gives him to pray, but does not this simplified method of St. Teresa actually meet the real needs of many? Are there not many among you who cannot meditate, but who can pray? In any case, St. Teresa's teaching reminds all of us of what it truly means, what is truly essential in prayer especially that it is a person-to-person -person contact between intimate, loving friends. That is mental prayer. St. Teresa did not, did in fact, St. Teresa did in fact envy those who could meditate. She saw the value of extended reflections and dynamic dramatizations on the events of our Lord's life. She well knew that Thoughts and images rouse up the will and incite lively sentiments of the virtues. But at the same time, she knew that the essence of mental prayer lies on a deeper level than our own reflections and thinking. That real prayer exists when one strives to make contact with God, whatever success is had, and that the measure of prayer's perfection is the love that inspires it. And I repeat that, and that the measure of prayer's perfection is the love that inspires it. And so St. Teresa prayed the only way she could, suffering the increased difficulties that were bound to come from the fact 
that the imagination, the memory, and the intellect were not given a methodical plan of action. Interesting that this Carmelite writer says she actually envied, in a way, those who were good at meditation, having some kind of practical, methodical, intellectual uh, way of praying and reflecting upon virtues, life of our Lord, and so on. And in the simplicity of her prayer, just going to him as to a loving friend, as one loving friend to another, um, she bypassed all of that. She envied those who were able to do it, but she got right to the heart of the matter. That was the thing. She got to the heart of the matter, and that's where we ultimately all have to go. She would use supports wherever she could find them, in books, for example, or in the beauties of nature, even in holy cards. Books were her standby. She never began mental prayer without some reading to collect her thoughts and put herself in the atmosphere of prayer. She returned to the book as often as she needed in the course of the prayer. Daily spiritual reading assumes special importance because of the relative lack of reflection at prayer itself. Vocal prayers, like the Our Father, said slowly and with an effort to taste each praise, were also employed to express her love for God. But the starting point and the way to her whole system lay simply in looking at the Lord present in her soul. And again, you see in this treatment that St. Teresa did use the classical methods of mental prayer. She'd start by placing herself in the presence of God, but she would have primed the pump, so to speak, by reading something of sacred scripture and having that, having that as, the, as the fuel by which she would go to her friend, uh, the presence of Christ within her, she would go to him with his own words. She would go to him inspired by his words, and she would reflect upon them within her. And she let him be her teacher. She would let him be her teacher and explain to him, explain to her the meaning of his own words that she read. Again, this is very common in methods, but for St. Teresa, the point is it wasn't a method. It was a way of life. It was a way of prayer. She wasn't actually, in her own mind, following a method. In the beginning, his presence would be recognized by an act of faith, expressed and made graphic in the dress of a picture of our Lord. With growth in the spiritual life, in faith and hope and charity, and hence in prayer itself, the sense of his presence would become more profound more realized, more experiential, you'd say. At all times, this loving union with the indwelling God was the immediate goal of her prayer. It should be your goal at prayer also, and you will more quickly and more surely attain this union with God if you take to heart the discovery of St. Teresa of Avila. We need no wings to go in search of him, but have only to find a place where we can be alone and look upon him present within us. Well, ultimately, St. Teresa found the real enclosed garden, and she found the enclosed garden of the soul in the state of grace. And she found our Lord dwelling there, waiting for her, waiting for her all this time. So that's where she learned to go, and that's what she recommends to us too. And no matter what methods we learn, no matter how experience we get, no matter how expert we get, no matter if we get our PhD in mental prayer, it's not going to change anything but the fact that that's the ultimate goal of it all. That's where it all must lead, to an intimate friendship with our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Our Lord told his apostles at the Last Supper, our Lord told his apostles, I do not call you, I do not call you rather um, anything but friends. I call you friends, he said, as, and friends reveal to friends the, the intimacies of their heart. And that's what our Lord did at the Last Supper. And he referred to them as friends. But he also gave them a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. That goes far beyond the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And so uh, this is preparing this is preparing the way for them not being just his friends, the friends of the Son of God, but being the children of God the Father. Now that is as intimate as one could possibly get, being the children of God the Father. And I would suggest that this is where St. Therese is leading. As she talks about uh, leaving behind the, the words and even the conversation with our Lord. There are times when she says we're talking about not meditation but contemplation. And that's where St. Teresa herself often went, simply a contemplation. And you ask yourself, well, what is contemplation? Do we ever see it? Do we know what it is? Yes, you should by now have an idea what contemplation is, even from the things of the world. I mentioned this to you before. You see something exquisitely beautiful. You see something so beautiful, it absolutely captivates your mind. It so completely captivates your mind because it is so beautiful that you forget everything else. It's the only thing you can see. It's the only thing you can think of. You become almost insensible to the world around you. Sometimes people see a magnificent sunset and they're just so overwhelmed by it and so captivated by it that for a moment, it's all that they know. It takes all their attention. There's not another thought in their mind. This is it. It's so beautiful. Now, if you haven't had that experience, well, hopefully you will someday. Nobody should go through life without that. Or hearing something so beautiful, some, some piece of music that is so beautiful, that again, it just immediately seizes all your attention. And it's, it's almost like uh, going into ecstasy. It's almost like rapture in a sense, because it is something so beautiful. And you realize, of course, that's what you're created for. You're created to enjoy what is beautiful. That's the ultimate, ultimate purpose of your existence. And you're meant to enjoy the beauty of God in heaven, actually be a part of that, be part of the beauty of God. And um, we can experience that somewhat in a very small way, like in sips in this world, by the beauties of things we see. And of things that we can sense through the eyes and, and hear and so on, if these can be so beautiful that they're captivating, well, it, that's just a hint of what, what is to come in terms of the beauty of the God who created all these things and of whom these things are nothing but a very, very, very remote and very, very strained reflection. But if we find them so beautiful here, well, then we can have a little bit of a sense of what it is to actually have contemplation. If you want to see what contemplation is, you see a mother receive her newborn baby into her arms for the first time, and you see the look on her face, and you see her intently looking into the face of her newborn baby. And she is completely insensitive to anything else. Her entire attention is devoted to that newborn. And there is this loving bond between them that is just unspeakable. It is so great. This is true motherhood. And what you actually are witnessing there is a form of contemplation. Uh, wordless, simply gaze of delight 
and absolute joy and wonder, all of it together. For that moment, you're witnessing kind of contemplation. Do fathers experience this? They might, they might. Although I suppose guys would tend to be, uh, we tend to associate contemplation with the look that comes over a man's face when he sees uh, some really like vintage car on the road and he's, he's just captivated by the sight of it or something like that. Maybe there are other things that captivate a, a guy's imagination and draw him to it because he's in such admiration of it. But regardless of whatever it is, whether it be the sunset, a newborn baby, or a vintage automobile uh, shining in the sunlight, tooling down the road, or a muscle car for those who are into those things, whatever it is that gives such delight, we, we already have a kind of experience of some kind of contemplation where something is just so, so spectacularly, beautifully gorgeous and so wondrous that it, it just captivates us. It just takes all of our thoughts, you know. That's contemplation. And that's, that's what Teresa Avila and the other saints, St. John of the God, St. John of the Cross, and so on, that was where their mental prayer was taking them. It was taking them to these, these moments, whether it be moments or hours for that matter, where they would actually go beyond the, even the conversational stage. And they would just have this sense of well-being in the presence of God. They just have an overwhelming sense of well-being in the presence of God and just kind of an admiration and a wonder and not only a sense of being loved, but the ability to respond to that love, to accept the love of God and to respond with a great, great love of their own. I mean, this is the objective of all mental prayer. It's what we call contemplation. That's why when I tell people about the idea of mental prayer, I tend to bypass all of the methodology, well, sort of like St. Teresa, not that we have much in common beyond that, unfortunately, but trying to follow her pattern, I think, is important. You know, if we say that Christ our Lord came to reconcile us to the Father, well, sometimes people have difficulty with that because... Let's face it, we, as I say, at the beginning of this retreat, all have our own relationships with our fathers. Each one of us has a unique relationship, as unique as our fathers and as unique as we are. We have unique relationships with our fathers. And so for us to talk about the fatherhood of God, and for us to uh, talk about Christ, our Lord, coming to reconcile us to the Father, we have different concepts of father. <clears throat> fatherhood for us to some extent is defined by our own fathers and our own sonship. And sometimes that's a good relationship and sometimes not so good relationship. But you know, in the ideal, in the ideal, we can all understand this. What son does not want to be proud of his father? I mean, is there a son who ever lived who did not really want to be proud of his father. And when he discovers his father has feet of clay, if he set him up as kind of an idol, idolizes him, then he's very disappointed, traumatized, perhaps even embittered. When he sees his father has feet of clay, 
Because we want the ideal father, the perfect father. But no man can be that. Every one of us wants to be very proud of his father. But also, uh, what son is it who doesn't want his father to be proud of him? It's a relationship in the ideal terms of, of love. That is the love of, of true fatherhood. The desire to be proud of our fathers and our fathers be proud of us. So we seek, we want. There's not a man alive who, I believe, wouldn't agree, yes. Yes, I would want to be proud of my father no matter what. Whether I am or not is another question, but I would want to be. It's very important to me to be able to be proud of my father. And I would want my father to be proud of me, too. Something very deep within us goes into the nature of our very being, you know. And at Christ, our Lord came to reconcile us to the true father. All other father, fatherhood is simply a greater or lesser reflection of the fatherhood of God. But we know where to find true fatherhood, and that is in God, our creator. And so um, our Lord has come to reconcile us with the father, the father, not just a father, the father. And so when we pray, we should think in those terms, perhaps, of going right, to, right there, right where our Lord himself wants to take us. That is, I believe, entering into the sacred heart of Jesus and praying with the sacred heart of Jesus. Because that's where the sacred heart of Jesus wants to go. That's where his own heart is. That's where the heart of Jesus is. It is completely directed to the Father. And insofar as we can pray with Jesus Christ, so our thoughts and our prayers, our aspirations are directed there also. So I, I do recommend that when we do indulge in mental prayer, we we actually think in terms of this. And that is why I recommend that we, um, in mental prayer, at least at some point, in some way, perhaps every day if we can, take a moment to, again, place ourselves in the presence of God and uh, go into that garden, wherever you find it, uh, and actually be mindful of God. Be mindful of his presence. But when you're mindful of God's presence, it's not like being mindful of the presence of the lights over your head or the fans blowing over you, or it's not like mindful of, of the grass or the sun in the sky. You're not just looking at God as some kind of an object. You're mindful of God for who he is. You're mindful of God as a knowing and loving being. And not just a knowing and loving being, the supreme knowing and loving being. That is what you want to be mindful of. You want to be mindful of God as knowing, as knowing you. You want to be knowing God as knowing you. You want to be mindful of God as mindful of you. You want to be aware of God as God being aware of you. And despite the imperfection of your awareness of God, you know that his awareness of you is absolutely 
comprehensive. That he is infinitely aware of you. That you are aware of that. You're aware of his awareness of you. And you are aware of the fact that his divine gaze, like this penetrating light, absolutely fills, floods you, and illuminates you. That this knowledge of God, this mindfulness and awareness of God of you, as the gospel today said, numbers every single hair on your head. That God is aware of every, every organ in your body. He's aware of every molecule, every atom and every molecule of your body. But even far beyond that, his gaze penetrates into the very depths of your soul. He knows you exactly for who you are. He knows you for every feeling. He knows you for every thought. He knows you for every desire. He knows you for every aspiration. He knows you everything. He knows everything. He knows you for every sin. And he knows you for every repentance. He knows you for every grace he gave you. And he knows for every response you gave to that grace. He knows that. He knows that perfectly. Infinitely powerfully, he knows that. And knowing, knowing all of that, knowing all of that, he loves you. He loves you. And it is very much that act of the will of God, it is completely that act of the will of God that sustains your very existence, that knowing you in every single aspect of your being, comprehending you completely, perfectly, he loves you. And it is the power of that love that brought you into existence and that sustains your existence. That is the key to your very, very being. And when you have come to that point where you've kind of had your mind, had all of that come to your mind and fill your mind, you have that awareness of God which completely fills your mind. You didn't have to make some Herculean efforts to drive out of your mind all the other thoughts that are in it. It is rather this one thought that has just so completely filled your mind that it's all you think of. It, it just gently kind of sweeps everything else out of your mind for the time being so that it's the only thing you're aware of, and that is... You're aware of God's awareness of you. And that's all you're aware of. And you're aware of God's love for you. And that's all you're aware of. That's all that matters. And then you come to the point where you yourself respond to that. And you respond to it by making an act of love for God. That can be very spontaneous. That automatically it just draws the love out of you for Almighty God. Or it can be deliberate to, to actually make the decision to love God in return, or both, for that matter. But then you actually have completed the whole purpose of the mental prayer and that, uh, that union, which is love, the connection of God's love with your love. You make the connection of, of your knowledge, your awareness, uh, cognition, as it were, of your awareness of God's awareness 
you make that connection with his divine intelligence, but then you make the connection of wills, God's will and your will, by making an act of love for him. Um, how much time does this take? As much time as you give, as much time as God gives you, you may say. Could you actually accomplish this active mental prayer? Could you do it in a minute? Yes. Could you do it in a second? Well, actually, yeah, you could, frankly. Especially if you've become into the so-called habit or practice of it. You could do that often during the day. It wouldn't take a matter of a split second to to make that awareness and to be aware of God's awareness of you and his love for you and to respond by loving him. Or it could go on for hours, actually, as the saints did in their ecstasies as they were insensible to the things around them because there was only one thing that mattered and that was what filled their minds and their hearts at that moment, and that was God. So this is a, a very, uh, I think, important aspect of the mental prayer that we can, all of us, can do and should do. And really, it's just a matter of deciding to do it. It's a matter of, St. Teresa says, well, basically ask and seek, and you'll be knocking at that door. But you have to want that by love, and you have to seek God. You have to seek him. And if you seek him, he will lead you right to his door. He'll be right there. And he says he'll open it. He'll open that door to you. Well, now, uh, with regard to... Uh, this, this really is the um, point of the mental prayer question that I wanted to talk about. But uh, I to, don't want to uh, expand things too much here. I just would like to tell you that in praying... Um, with the Sacred Heart of Jesus. You can literally do that in the Holy Mass. Um, the Garden of Gethsemane, our Lord lamented that the apostles did not pray with him. And uh, that passion ended on the cross, as you know, when our Lord gave us uh, the sacrifice, the holy sacrifice that would be the very center the very meaning of the Mass, the very meaning of his giving us his body and blood that would be sacrificed for us. And that sacrifice would be represented upon the altar every time Mass is offered. Not just represented as a memorial, but as a fact made present upon the altar. That's what the Mass is. The actual body and blood of Christ <clears throat> placed there together to show forth his death until he comes, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians. So when you realize that in the sacred host, you do have the body of Christ. He's present there as God and man. And in the body of Christ, in the very center, you might say, of that host, is as in the very center of our Lord's chest when he lived, is that heart. The sacred heart is present there. And so when you look at that host, you are actually gazing upon the body of Christ. You can't, can't see it with your eyes. You see it with the eyes of faith. And you make the act of faith that he is present there, as he promised he would be. And you believe he is the son of God, he had the power, he made the promise, and he had the power to keep it. And he is keeping the mass as his promise to be there for you. So you realize what you're doing 
is you're acknowledging the presence of the Sacred Heart in that Sacred Host. The Sacred Heart of Jesus, as every man is present in the host, as it was present in his breast as he hung dying on the cross, the very heart that was opened by the spear on the cross by the soldier, by the soldier that very heart is present there in that host. But now it is alive and glorified. And it is here for you. The Sacred Heart is here for you because our Lord wants you to pray with his Sacred Heart. And that ultimately is true in the Holy Mass, that you pray there with the Sacred Heart of Jesus. This is what our Lord pleaded you to do. And it becomes very, very uh, poignant for the priest in the Mass, as I've mentioned to you before, because so much of what takes place in the Mass kind of centers around the heart of Jesus. Um, You know, again, I'm, I'm sure I've mentioned this to you, when the priest is standing at the altar, he uh, has the host positioned there before he's going to receive the host. And especially when he bows over to make his three prayers of preparation for Holy Communion. You're well familiar with them if you've been praying the prayers of the Mass. These are prayers that you should be saying too for yourself at every Mass. Three prayers, very brief, but to the point, prayers of preparation to actually receive Holy Communion. The priest is given those by the church to pray those three prayers. It just takes a matter of, oh, perhaps a minute, a minute and a half at most. But the priest is bowed over and he's actually like facing the host, okay? What does he see? Well, he sees the body of Christ in the host and it's like the very image of the Sacred Heart of our Lord. I mean, our Lord's heart, in a sense, crushed. And so the, the flatness of the host is that unleavened bread lying there. Now, the body of Christ, uh, crushed by sin, okay, bled out and perfectly white, having shed its blood, the blood and the water having flowed out of it. And yet it is lying there in the middle of the pattern, which is gilded, And because the pattern is gilded, it's reflecting the lights from all around. And so it kind of envelops the host in this sort of blaze of glory around it, of the gilded, this brilliant gilding, illuminated by the lights of the church, even by the candles. And so the priest sees that as the very image of the Sacred Heart lying before him, surrounded by this, this blaze of glory. And it is kind of the very image of the Sacred Heart. But not only that, at that moment when the priest is looking at the host, he's already taken it just moments before, broken it, broken off a piece of the Sacred Host in the form of a wedge. And when he puts the pieces of the host back together and drops the one piece, the the wedge part, into into the chalice, he prays. But now what he's looking at He's looking at the image of the Sacred Heart with this opening, kind of spear shape and a spearhead opening going right to the center of the host. And so it really does take on the character of our Lord's heart pierced by the lance, lying there, broken by our ingratitude and our lack of love, uh, crushed by our sins, bled out in sacrifice for us. What could be more expressive of the sacred heart of Jesus than that. And then what follows is even, in a sense, more poignant for the priest, 
And I've mentioned this also, I know, in one of the What Catholics Believe recently, but I hadn't mentioned it before in all these years. And there is a moment then after the priest <clears throat> consecrates, breaks the host, takes the piece and puts it in the chalice and places the host in that condition on that pattern. When he, uh, when he actually uh, is praying those prayers, and uh, in a sense he's bowed over it, but there's another time before that when he's bowed over the bowed over the sacred host, and that is just after he has consecrated it, and he's going to consecrate the chalice. At the consecration, the priest also bows, but he bows in a very particular way. He has consecrated the sacred host. He hasn't yet fragmented it or fractured the host. It's there all in its entirety and lying there at the foot of the chalice on the corporal. And the priest bows over that and picks up the chalice. But in order to bow over the uh, far enough to pick up the chalice and to speak into the chalice the words of consecration of the precious blood, the priest is <coughs> actually bent over the altar and he has to be careful here because he's just consecrated the sacred host and he's going to, in a sense, instead of lying lie his chest over the altar to reach the chalice that he's going to consecrate. And so at that point, the vestments could even contact the host and he's got to be aware, very much aware of the presence of the host as he's lying over it to consecrate the chalice. And what happens is his own heart, is brought very close to the host, the heart of Jesus. And the two hearts are brought together there as the priest is consecrating the precious blood. The priest is very conscious of this. He's very conscious of the position he's in there, bowing himself over, leaning himself over the, the corporal, over the altar, over the host that he's just consecrated. And um, the proximity of that host to his own, his own heart he sees it really as a, as a symbolic union of the sacred heart with his own heart. And so these are the, the thoughts and these are the things that, are, that the church herself has in her mind when she gives us these prayers to offer, when she gives us the consecration, when she gives us uh, the words of preparation for communion. She's very mindful of the significance of this action that is being performed there. And so the church wants you to enter into that too. The church wants you to see it, yes, even through the eyes of the priest, which you can do by following the prayers of the Mass. But central, central to the Mass is the Sacred Heart, and that is the premier way in which you, in which you pray with the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Now, if you don't mind, if you don't mind my digressing a little bit here, I just want to get down to the practical matters of you as Catholic men. And we have a group called Catholic Men for Christ the King, but let's face it, I mean, every Catholic man has to be for Christ the King, right? You're all Catholic men for Christ the King at heart. <clears throat> we have to realize what's going on in the world today, uh, which requires of us a very special dedication to our Lord. There's no lukewarmness possible here. We have to realize what's going on here, okay? And ultimately what's going on is um, the fulfillment of Our Lady's words that Russia will spread her errors throughout the world. And we are meant to rise to the occasion here. Uh, 
I mentioned the idea of the revolution. And the revolution was actually the first sin. Lucifer committed the first revolution. He was the first revolutionary. As Sololinsky gave him credit for, the first great revolutionaries, when Sololinsky dedicated his rules for radicals to Lucifer, the first great revolutionary who got his own kingdom. You think of revolution. Well, evolution, the VOL indicates kind of a turning around, turning something around. And that's what Lucifer sought to do, you know, to turn everything around to himself. And so Lucifer's servants in the world today, the Masons, the Freemasons among them, want to carry out a kind of revolution. And they've outlined that revolution in the permanent instruction of the Alta Vendita. You are familiar with it. If you're not, you should be. But most of you certainly are familiar with this document that was found in the Masonic lodges of northern Italy back in the early 1800s, more than 200 years ago. A document that described decatholicizing the world. The goal stated in the writing of this permanent instruction to the directing lodges of the Freemasons of Italy was to decatholicize the world and laid out a plan to do it. To decatholicize the world by decatholicizing the Pope. And to by well actually decatholicizing the world by decatholicizing the church. That was the first step. Or the last ultimate step to decatholicize the world, you'd have to first decatholicize the church. And to decatholicize the church, you'd have to decatholicize the Pope. To decatholicize the Pope, you'd have to decatholicize the clergy. And to decatholicize the clergy, you have to decatholicize Catholic society. To decatholicize Catholic society, you'd have to decatholicize the Catholic family. And this is the program that was mapped out, actually, by the Masons back in the early 1800s. The program prescribed in this permanent instruction of the Alta Vendita, the directing lodges of Italian Freemasonry. Decatholicize the world by decatholicizing the church, by decatholicizing the pope, by decatholicizing the clergy, by decatholicizing Catholic society, by decatholicizing the family, from whom all vocations must come. And so uh, the man who penned this instruction began receiving letters from other members of this, this 40 40 strong council, there were 40 members of the Alta Vendita who directed Freemasonry. And he began receiving letters from them saying, well, this is how we have to go about doing this. And they prescribed corruption. They said, we have to do this, especially starting by decatholicizing the family by corruption. We have to corrupt everyone. We have to undertake a campaign of corruption that will completely engulf the entire society of all of Catholic societies. We have to corrupt the husbands and the fathers. We have to corrupt especially the wives and the mothers. In fact, one of those who wrote to Nubius, the, the pen name of the person who wrote the instruction, said that if you want to corrupt mankind, you have to start by eliminating women. He said we have to eliminate women. 
Or you might say, eliminate, eliminate woman or womanhood. You have to eliminate that. And what he meant by that is you have to destroy in woman even a natural modesty. You have to make a woman perverse, brash, bold, arrogant. You have to make women everything that they are not. Destroy all their modesty. Destroy all their demureness. Destroy their gentility. Make them creatures of hell. If you can do that, the men will follow. The family will follow. Society will follow. The clergy themselves will fall. And from that clergy will come a pope who will not be a Catholic at all. And from that you will find the church decatholicized, purged of her Catholicism. And then the world itself will be completely decatholicized, purged of Christ. This was their model, you know. They wanted to completely overturn the moral order. And uh, when the Marxists of the 1930s saw that Marx was wrong, that the whole world didn't fall into communist revolution after the taking of Russia, after the Bolshevik revolution of Russia, they went back to their think tanks and they figured, well, why in the world is the world not falling into Marxism? And they decided it's because of Catholicism. They decided that the Catholic faith and the Catholic culture was preventing the world from falling into Marxism. And they said, therefore, we have to remove Catholicism. And so the permanent instruction of the Altamontidas program to decatholicize the world was mapped out by the members of the Frankfurt School, Frankfurt in Germany, who were mostly Jewish Marxists. They were mostly Jewish Marxist psychologists and psychiatrists. And they kind of brought together Marx and Freud. And they produced what is called a critical theory. Now, you've heard of the critical race theory today? It's nothing but the application of the Marxist Frankfurt School. <clears throat> Cultural Marxism to race. It's all it is. It's simply the Marxist program of the Frankfurt School to decatholicize, to dechristianize society. It's pure and absolute, unadulterated Marxism. And the order was to completely overturn the moral order. Now, Antonio Gramsci is a name you should be familiar with. Antonio Gramsci was an Italian revolutionary atheist, Marxist, imprisoned, who wrote his diaries and laid out a plan a very minute plan. And actually, you know, you hear about the plan of the Alta Vendita. Well, as the plans went through the Frankfurt School and through Gramsci, it became more and more precise, more and more particular. How are we going to do this? How are we going to produce corruption en masse so that the entire world and everybody in it will be corrupted? especially by impurity and immodesty. How will we make the entire world one vast seething, just septic wound of, of corruption? Well, they actually spelled out a plan, and I've kind of denominated it by certain terms. One is diversion. 
diversion. You know, the French word for uh, entertainment is divertissement. And it means, you know, a kind of diversion of the mind. And so they would use entertainment. They would use diversion. They would, they would use diversion in the Catholic societies. And through the means of entertainment, they would get people used to the idea of immorality. They would take away the abhorrence and the aversion. Again, now we're talking about the internal senses again, right? We would remove the aversion to immorality and vice by entertainment. We'd get people accustomed to it. We'd get people so accustomed to it, they'd even laugh at it. They'd find it comical. We'll provide comedies that make fun of mortal sin, that make fun of things that send people to hell. We'll have people laughing at these things, so they're very entertaining. Instead of being horrified at homosexuality, we'll get them laughing at it. We'll make fun of it, and people will begin to actually realize, well, it's kind of enjoyable in a sense, to at least, and nothing to be afraid of, because we can laugh at it. And from this idea of diversion, we'll proceed then in the next step to subversion. And in the process of subversion, we'll let people think that, well, you know, virtue and vice, they're basically on the same level. And it's all a matter of individual taste and individual interpretation, isn't it? I mean, what's your vice is my virtue. So it becomes very subjective. And so I will subvert the moral order by basically just putting vice and virtue on the same level so that the people of that society will accept vice and virtue indifferently. And then we can move on to the level of inversion. And by inversion, now we're going to actually make vice in a way preferable, uh, almost admirable, we're going to uh, attribute to vice actually a certain mystique, as though there's something to be admired in it, because maybe it uh, shows a certain independence of mind and courage of heart <clears throat> to actually indulge in vice. And uh, once we get through the process of diversion into the process of subversion, <clears throat> into the process of inversion, the next step is very simple, and that's where we are right now, and that is the process of perversion. When vice is something that is not only considered to be something almost admirable and even heroic, but it's going to be protected by law. It's going to be guaranteed by law. And not only will vice be protected by law, but virtue will be punished. Virtue will be punished by law. And when the society has come to this point, where it's gone through this process of becoming desensitized to vice, <clears throat> so it finds it just basically tolerable, even comical, and then going to the point where it considers there to be no really essential difference between vice and virtue, and then seeing in vice even some advantages, and finally getting to the point where law protects vice, as the norm and punishes virtue, then you have a society that will be completely corrupt and ready for communism. It will be ready for communism. And I'm afraid that's where we are now. What we see happening is the fulfillment of Our Lady's words at Fatima, that Russia will spread her errors throughout the world.
I think that, in fact, is now being accomplished before our very eyes, and even here now. What does this mean for you and me? Well, it means for you and me that we have to be more dedicated than ever to what Our Lady told us as the remedy, as the means of withstanding, as the means of forestalling all of these things. We have to rise to the occasion and be the Catholic men for Christ the King that God is calling us to be. We have to pray to the Sacred Heart. We have to pray with the Sacred Heart of Jesus. We have to be the fathers and the husbands that uh, we have vowed to be, actually, by our marriage vows, by our priestly vows. We have to be the priests that we have, in events, vowed to be to God. And we have to put away all of the things of a child, as St. Paul says, and become the men that we are meant to be. So I ask you to realize the importance of mental prayer in making that happen. Giving just 15 minutes a day minimum to that practice will make a very big difference and will be a, certainly a major impetus in you learning to pray with the Sacred Heart of Jesus and becoming the Catholic man for Christ the King that God is calling you to be now. With that, let's pray and be on our way. We have the rosary coming up very soon, and after that, lunch and the retreat will be ended.